Welcome back to Uprising. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. The issue of national security is constantly invoked by politicians and the media as justifications for war and surveillance. Since the September 11th attacks, the U.S. has launched endless wars that have ironically made us less safe and built an unprecedented network of intrusive surveillance. Today, as part of an ongoing series of interviews that I did with a number of experts, journalists, authors, and academics, we'll explore what the U.S.'s national security policies have really amounted to. The interviews were produced by Brave New Films, headed by acclaimed filmmaker Robert Greenwald. They're called the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum, named after the 33rd Vice President of the United States, who served under FDR during World War II. Henry A. Wallace ran for the presidency on the Progressive Party ticket and he was known as a champion of the common man. On today's episode of the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum, we present my interview on how U.S. imperialism is uh, playing out in the war in Afghanistan with Anand Gopal, author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. Gopal served as an Afghanistan correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. He's reported on the Middle East and South Asia for Harper's, The Nation, The New Republic, Foreign Policy, and other publications. Americans argue over whether or not to go to war from the safety of their homes. But what do the people who we invade and occupy think? Welcome to the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. When the U.S. invades a country, we often only hear about it through stories about our soldiers and commanders, and not through the eyes of those being occupied. Joining me now is Anand Gopal, one of the very few foreign journalists to have embedded with the Taliban. He's the author of No Good Men Among the Living, which recounts the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan through Afghan eyes. Welcome, Anand. Thanks for having me. Well, first, in your book, No Good Men Among the Living, you draw attention to the impact of U.S. policies in Afghanistan all the way back to the Cold War. And I'm wondering if you can trace those policies. How did such policies allow eventually for the emergence of the Taliban? Well, when the Soviet Union invaded in 1979, uh, resistance was, was sparked because of this. And the, the U.S., particularly the CIA, flooded Afghanistan with guns and weapons and created what's called the Mujahideen, or the Islamic uh, holy fighters. And this also created warlordism. So the warlords that we see today in Afghanistan originate back in 1979. There was no warlordism before then in the country. Um, and so these Islamic radicals and these warlords uh, have been fighting ever since. And it's been in that chaos uh, that the Taliban originally arose. Now, we're supposed to be drawing down the Afghan war, uh, but because of bilateral agreements signed between the U.S. and Afghanistan and President Obama quietly extending the war, it's not clear if, in fact, we are withdrawing. What is the attitude of Afghans, ordinary Afghans, to the U.S. troops and what they see as an occupation that may have no end? Well, Afghans are divided on this question, and in many ways it reflects the fact that the country itself is, is divided into two parts. Uh, the war is only being fought in about half of the country, in the south and in the east. Uh, and the other half of the country is mostly at peace. So if you talk to Afghans there in the areas that are at peace, many of them will say, you know what, we'd rather the troops stay in Afghanistan as a buffer against uh, future civil war or the rise of the Taliban into their areas. But if you talk to Afghans in the areas where the war is being fought, most of them will tell you that they're tired of the fighting and they don't want troops there because they see troops as part of the reason why there is so much violence. 
So the U.S. has spent over a trillion dollars on the war in Afghanistan. In your view, what has all that money accomplished? If you go to Afghanistan, if you travel through the countryside, one of the most shocking things is just how underdeveloped the country is and remains, despite the fact that the U.S. has actually spent more money in Afghanistan than it did in the entire Marshall Plan uh, to rebuild Europe after World War II. Um, that's just a staggering amount of money, and, and most of that money has not reached ordinary Afghans. It's gone into the coffers of major corporations. It's gone into the hands of warlords, strongmen, private security companies. A lot of it has gone to Dubai, uh, but roads are still in a state of disrepair. There are schools that are abandoned. Um, people uh, don't have electricity. Um, the level of infrastructure in this country is one of the worst in the world, and that's staggering considering the fact that we've probably spent more money in Afghanistan than we have in any other country in the world. So over the years that you have been reporting from Afghanistan, what sort of changes have you seen in the day-to-day -day lives of ordinary people, particularly marginalized populations like women and children? In 2001, Afghanistan had already been at war for about two decades. Uh, there were no jobs. Uh, there was a massive uh, refugee crisis. And, and there was a sense that maybe with the United States coming, a lot of these things would change. But in, instead, what you've seen is more of the same, another decade of war. And so the hope that was there in the early years is gone. And it's, it's been replaced by cynicism. And many of the Afghans that I speak to who had returned to the country from Pakistan or Iran, um, where they were refugees, and, and tried to build a life, now they're looking to, to leave again. Because from their point of view, there is no end in sight. Not only is there the Taliban and US forces, there are also warlords, there are also a host of militias that the U.S. is supporting, hundreds of thousands of people with uh, guns who are fighting on one side or the other, and civilians are the ones who are caught in between these two. So what do you expect for Afghanistan's future, with or without U.S. troops? How are uh, ordinary Afghans going to deal with these warlords that are in power in the government, uh, forces like the Taliban as an unofficial army on the ground. Do you foresee that Afghanistan may be a country where you could see the rise of new militant organizations like we've seen in Iraq? There are, there are already new militant organizations that are arising. There are splinter groups coming out, out of the Taliban who are more radical than anything we've seen in the Taliban. I mean, they're small right now but um, it's certainly a growing phenomenon. And that's born out of the fact that there's been no end in sight in the, uh, to the fighting. Uh, on, on the one hand, on the Afghan government side, you have private security contractors, the Afghan army, the Afghan police, and warlords. And if you add it all up, that's almost 350,000 men under arms who are being paid for by the United States to fight on the US's behalf. So in other words, a massive proxy army. On the other hand, you have tens of thousands of Taliban fighters, many of them are farmers by day and pick up the gun by night, and they're supported by Pakistan. Their leadership uh, has safe haven in Pakistan, and you can consider them also a proxy army of Pakistan. So you have a, what's essentially a proxy war. It's in that milieu that you see some of the even more radical tendencies coming out. So would you say that the U.S.'s policies in uh, Afghanistan have had a ripple effect with unintended consequences as far away as northern Iraq and Syria with groups like ISIS coming about and within Afghanistan as well, that, that U.S. policy has really directly fueled the rise of these movements? If you look back over the last 30 years, it's certainly the case that U.S. policy uh, in Afghanistan and its counterterrorism policy in general has 
uh, has fanned the flames of insurgency and jihad. Many of the leaders of al-Qaeda got their sort of start in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, the Afghanistan at the time was a, a magnet for jihadis, and it was so in part because there was so much uh, money and guns floating around because of the CIA's patronage of the Mujahideen. Um, and that was the start of it. And if you look at Iraq, groups like ISIS only exist because of the chaos that was sown by the U.S. invasion in 2003 and the subsequent civil war. Um, none of these groups would have come about if it weren't for that. And so U.S. policy in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world is actually continuing to create the very enemies that it purports to fight. So you just returned, I understand, from northern Iraq and Syria. And what are people on the ground in those countries saying about ISIS? What sort of uh, support is there or lack of? And uh, what sort of attitudes do you see, for example, among the Iraqi National Army and Syrian rebel groups? Well, in Iraq, uh, I had a chance to speak to people from all sections of society. And one thing that I found is that while ISIS is extremely unpopular, and understandably so given how brutal they are, um, I, I did not meet a single Sunni Iraqi who did not view ISIS as, a, as equally bad to the Iraqi government. In fact, all the Sunni Iraqis I met viewed ISIS as a lesser of two evils to the Iraqi government and to the Shia militias who are doing really the same things that ISIS is doing. The Shia militias whom the U.S. is backing and Iran is also backing, they're beheading people, they're torturing people. You can actually go on YouTube and see some of their videos. We don't, in the West, we don't tend to focus on the Shia militias because they tend to be our guys. We tend to focus on ISIS, but from the point of view of people, let's say, in Anbar province, they actually view ISIS as a lesser of two evils to the Shia militias, and that's really a tragedy if things have gotten so bad that a group like ISIS can be seen as a lesser of two evils. Anand, how can Americans see the wars that we allow in our names through the eyes of ordinary Afghans, Iraqis, the people who are on the other ends of our policies? Well, I think to start with, uh, we, d we need more reporting on the lives of Afghans and Iraqis and others. Um, you know, there's a lot in the news about Afghans and Iraqis, but they tend to be nameless and faceless. Uh, they tend to be the object of our attention, but we need to make them the subject of our reporting. You know, we need to actually talk to Iraqis and Afghans and get their experiences because the world looks very different when you talk to them. The occupations and the wars look very different. Um, and, you know, in my uh, travels through southern Afghanistan, I had my worldview changed in many respects by talking to Afghans and who gave me a very different perspective on what the fighting was about. And I would have never gotten that if I didn't have a chance to talk to them. So I think we need to make them a center of our reporting. Well, Anand, thank you for all the work you do and for joining us. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum, we'll talk with Heidi Bogosian, who'll take us through the expansion of the security state. It has gotten so large that private companies can now rent it for their own purposes. Private corporations aren't bound by the U.S. Constitution, so the kind of spying, uh, the in-depth monitoring that they can and do conduct on activists and ordinary Americans uh, is really uh, without oversight and without the kind of rules that government intelligence agencies are supposed to follow. 
Anand Gopal is the author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. He served as an Afghanistan correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. He's reported on the Middle East and South Asia for Harper's The Nation, The New Republic, Foreign Policy, and other publications. On Thursday, as part of our ongoing series on the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum, we'll play an interview with Heidi Bogosian on how national security has been used to justify unlimited surveillance. This is Uprising. We'll be right back.